Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4 this morning, Galatians 4. We'll look at uh, Galatians 4, 1 to 11 this morning. We kind of live in a day of throwaway children. This week I read of a woman in our county who called the authorities asking the that Child Protective Services come and pick up her 13-month-old. She didn't want the child anymore. I have no idea what that was about, but it sounds unthinkable to me. On a larger scale in, in America, over 56 million unborn children have been aborted, thrown away since the, 1990, the 1973 Roe v. Wade court decision. Thank God for those selfless folks, some of you, who fight to save the lives of those children by loving and seeking help for their frightened, hurting moms. But sometimes it's possible to do more than just save a life. Sometimes it's possible to adopt a child and give him or her a whole new life. I'm so pleased that many of you have done just that. We are blessed among our chapel kids to have many adopted kids. What could possibly set forth more beautifully what God has done for us? He has adopted us into his family, giving us the full rights of sons. I bring this all up because that's the subject of this text this morning. That in his grace, God has adopted us through Christ. In other words, if I were to ask for a show of hands of who in the room is adopted, I would expect not just to see the hands of those kids that I know are in adopted families, but for all of our hands to go up, for, uh, for we are the adopted ones because of Jesus. Well, listen to our text from God's word. Galatians 4, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because your sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather, that, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is actually a very difficult text. It's been a lot of months since I've struggled. It's hard to know how to preach a text as I've struggled with this one uh, this week. But let me now boil it down to three rather simple points. The first is this. Apart from Christ, 
religion enslaves us. Apart from Christ, religion enslaves us. These days, if religion is tolerated at all, it is only in the context of pluralism. Pluralism is the notion that at their core, all religions are basically the same. So that what appear to be exclusive claims of various religions, when examined more closely, are really only variations of the same thing. It's it's like a make-your-own-Sunday, actually. It's all ice cream, really. All the same. The only difference is the little toppings that you prefer. But, But folks, the Bible, including our text, makes a much more radical claim than that. It says that apart from Christ Jesus, religions enslave us. They're all the same, only in that bad sense. I know that sounds radical, so hear me out. The context of our passage this morning is the discussion of the role of the Old Testament that was at the end of chapter 3. Remember the apostle said it's like a guardian commissioned to keep us in line until Christ appeared. And in verse 2, we hear the same language about being under guardians and and managers. That was the role of the law uh, uh, before Christ came. But this chapter goes even further. In verse 3, Paul writes that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of of the world. In fact, he uses that concept of slavery many times here. In verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 8, and in verse 9. And in the whole discussion, he's speaking of spiritual slavery. What religion does to us. Now this is difficult, so let me explain the best I can. Among the Galatians... There, uh, there, there were both Jews and Gentiles. Both are spoken of here, but differently. First of all, concerning the Jews. The Jews were physical descendants of Abraham. They were heirs of God's covenant. But verse 1 points out that even an heir, as long as he's a minor, a child, is in practice no different from a slave. In other words, just as chapter 3 said, these children of Abraham living under the restrictions of the law were virtual religious slaves, obeying regulations and observing rituals and not yet heirs of anything until Jesus came. That sounds harsh, but that's similar to what Paul wrote in chapter 3 when he spoke of them being held captive and imprisoned until faith came. Apart from Jesus Even life under the law was a kind of religious slavery. That's what Paul is saying. It's not my idea. I wouldn't be bold enough to say that. That religious slavery looks quite different for those who were Gentiles. The Apostle Paul uses a difficult phrase twice in this passage, in verse 3 and again in verse 9. It's translated elementary principles of the world. It can have different meanings. It's a little bit of a, of a, of a strange, um, mysterious uh, a phrase. 
but it most commonly refers to the basic physical elements uh, that is uh, earth, fire, air, and water, and the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But in this ancient pagan world, all of those things were considered spiritual realities. The, the Jewish first century Jewish philosopher Philo noted that, quote, some nations have made divinities or deities or gods out of the four elements, earth and water and air and fire, others of the sun and moon and of the other planets and fixed stars, others again of the whole world. And that was a challenge for the ancient church, as it's a challenge for Christians in many lands, even today, where everything is considered to have spiritual power and significance. And that spiritual darkness, that slavery to things that are not really gods at all, was the background of the Gentile believers in Galatia. So they too, in a completely different way, had been enslaved by Christless, empty religion. You see, the Apostle Paul saw similarities between the Jews before they knew Jesus and the Gentiles when they were pagan. Douglas Moo writes, Paul in some manner associates Gentiles apart from Christ with the sin-producing and death-dealing effects of the law. Paul does not equate the law with these elementary principles, but he does associate them in some way. He wants to suggest that Gentiles, under the elementary principles, share with Jews under the law the same condition of living under a religious regimen involving rules relating to material realities all outmoded by the coming of Christ. Here in Galatians, he's pulling out all the rhetorical stops to try to convince the Galatians not to put themselves back under the law. For while quite different in basic ways from the pagan religions, the law, like those religions, belongs to a stage of religious experience that has been brought to an end with the coming of Christ. Or as, or as we have said it, apart from Christ, religion enslaves us. Now we need to hear this. We assume that godless pagans are enslaved by the power of evil. But according to Galatians 4, conservative, law-abiding pious church people may be equally enslaved if their piety does not flow from the work of Christ within them. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul condemned his own past life of circumcision and meticulous piety and zeal for the righteousness of the law. It was all nothing. It was but dung. Indeed, he abandoned it for the life, for life in Jesus. John Stott recounts a similar, the similar experience of John Wesley in his postgraduate days at Oxford, where he was a member of what was called the Holy Club. I don't know if they have those at universities anymore. 
He was a son of a clergyman and already a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in belief, religious in practice, upright in conduct, full of good works. He and his friends visited the inmates of the prisons and the workhouses of Oxford's. They took pity on the slum children of the city, providing them with food, clothing, and education. They observed Saturday as well as Sunday, as Sabbath days. They went to church and to Holy Communion. They gave alms. They searched the scriptures. They fasted. They prayed. They were bound in the fetters of their own religion, for they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous instead of putting their trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. A few years later, Wesley in his own words, came to trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation and was given an inward assurance that his sins had actually now been washed away. After, looking back on his after this looking back on his pre-conversion experience, he wrote in his journal, I had even then the faith of a servant, but not of a son. Which brings us to our second point. In Christ, God adopts us as sons. In Christ, God adopts us as sons. There's something really special about adopting a child. I've never adopted a child myself, but I've walked through the experience with a few friends. I think adoption is so special because it's not just parents seeking to re reproduce themselves by having children. It's parents responding to, to the needs of a child who needs parents. And that is exactly what God did. He responded to our desperate need and adopted us. Actually, our text tells us two things which God did. First, he sent forth his son. He sent forth his son. He acted when the fullness of times had come, we read. A lot of speculation about what exactly that means. Some uh, people say, well, it was the perfect timing because the Greek language covered the whole known world and the Roman road system made uh, travel and communication easy. But we all know that really what that means is when God thought it was time, God acted and sent his son, God who knows all things. This son, of course, was Jesus. He was sent from the Father. That means he was dwelling with the Father before he was sent. As we know from other passages, he's the eternal son of God. He was born of a woman. In other words, he became human, became like us. He was born under the law. He lived in submission to God's law like everyone else, but without sin. And he came first to redeem those who are under the law. We spoke of being under law as a kind of slavery. Well, sure enough, he came to redeem. Redeem is a slave market term. It means to buy out of slavery. He redeemed in order that the Father might adopt us. Redemption has to come first because our sins have to be paid for, removed. But the other things he does for us at the same time. He justifies us. He declares uh, uh, we who believe uh, to have the same right standing before God as Christ Jesus the Son has. He gives us new birth. He gives us new life a new heart. And all these are facets of Christ's work in our behalf in order that we might be adopted, brought into God's family, given a new status, a new identity, 
as a son adopted by the father. It was a thrilling experience for me the first time I stood with a family before a judge and heard the order pronounced changing that child's status and making him a son of those adoptive parents. But that was only a little taste of this. We who have gone our own way have sinned against the Father, who have deserved his judgment and punishment for our sins. We who have no reason for hope and lots of reasons for remorse. Because of the work of Jesus, we are adopted into the Father's family, made his sons. Then God did something else. Not just sent his son, God sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts. He sent his son into the world. He goes out to accomplish something objective on our behalf. But God sends his spirit into our hearts. The spirit goes inside of us to change us, to give us the experience of being God's children. Tim Keller explains, it's the son's job to make us sons, whether we feel like it or not. It's a spirit's job to help us appropriate that subjectively, to experience it, to understand it. You can claim what the son does. If you're feeling bleak and abandoned and isolated, but you're a Christian, you can say, I know I'm a child of God. I'm going to remind myself of that. But what we're talking about here in verse 6 is not something you can claim. We're talking about something that happens to you, something that you experience. That is what is promised in the sending of the Spirit, the experience of sonship. I know we're way too experience-oriented in, in our culture, but let's not throw out the, um, the baby with the bathwater. The Spirit is causing us to know, to feel, to experience what it means to be adopted by the Father. And what does that look like? More correctly, what does it sound like? But according to verse 6, the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Of course, that passionate cry comes out of our mouths, but it's prompted by the Spirit within. This is not about, about making noise. That's not the point. This is describing passionate prayer, intimate communion with our Father, whom we know has adopted us, who loves us, who listens to us. Can you imagine such a thing? Do you experience such a thing? Is that what your Christian life looks like? Are you ever aware of the Spirit working within you, assuring you that you belong to the Father, helping you, moving your heart to pray, causing you to know joy and peace in his presence, no matter what the circumstances. This is the norm for the Christian life. For in Christ, God has adopted us, made us the Father's sons and heirs. Which brings us then to our last point. Never return to slavery. Never return to slavery. It's never easy to deal with people you love who are making really bad choices. It's easy to criticize them. 
It's easy to just ignore it, claiming that it's none of my business. But it is very difficult to control your emotions and to control your words and gently but firmly confront someone you love who is about to falter. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in verses 8 to 11. Here he challenges and warns his Galatian friends, please do not return to the slavery. First he reminds them that their life reminds them of their life before they knew Christ. More accurately, before they were known by him. Back then they were in slavery, slavery to pagan religions. They cowered and sought to appease gods that were no gods. The physical elements of the cosmos, which supposedly represented spiritual powers. Their life was like that of many native peoples around the world who attribute the power of spirits to every element of nature. It is pure bondage. It's a life that cowers in in fear of unseen, offended powers. But these Galatians had heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. They believed that God sent his son to atone for them. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead and they had known what it was to be adopted by the Father. So how could they even consider returning to slavery? Well, it's interesting to read what they were doing that had the apostles so concerned. In verse 10 we learn they had begun to observe special days and months and seasons and years. In other words, they were beginning to take the Judaizers' advice and live according to the restrictions and the rituals of the law. That, you recall, has been the issue from the beginning of this book. John John Stott describes what this change looks like when we see it today. In other words, your religion has degenerated into an external formalism. It's no longer the free and joyful communion of children with their father. It's become a dreary routine of rules and regulations. But notice the implications of that regression. Paul does not say, hey guys, you're doing a lot of things that you don't have to do. Oh no, that's not what he says. He treated this as another form of willfully returning to slavery. He saw it as the same kind of regression as if they went back to their idols. For remember, all religion without Christ is slavery. And so with grave concern and with a broken heart, Paul appealed to them, please do not return to the slavery of a Christless religion. So how do we guard against slipping back into that? How do we guard against picking up the old familiar ways of spiritual slavery, of our performance, of trusting what we're doing, trusting our rituals rather than resting in Christ? 
John Stott points us to John Newton, who left us a good example. You know John Newton, right? The one who wrote Amazing Grace. He was an only child. He lost his mother when he was seven years old. Went to sea at the tender age of 11 and later became involved in the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. He plumbed the depths of human sin and degradation. But when he was 23, on the 10th of March in 1748, when his ship was in imminent peril of floundering in, the, in, a, in a terrifying storm, he cried out for God, to God for mercy, and he received mercy. He was truly converted, and he never forgot how God had had mercy on him, a former blasphemer. He sought diligent to remember what he had previously been and what God had done for him. We hear it in the, in the, in the words of the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. In order to imprint it on his memory, he had written in bold letters and fastened across the wall uh, over his mantelpiece in his, in his study the words of Deuteronomy 15, 15. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. You see, remembering what you were and what you have become helped keep you from turning back. The message of this text is actually quite simple. Once we were slaves... Now we are sons. How could we ever turn back to slavery? Or as I put it in our three points, apart from Jesus, religion enslaves us. But in Christ, the Father adopted us. So never return to slavery. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We're sometimes tempted to just make it our particular little topping on religion in general and to fail to see the radical difference, Lord, of freedom in Christ versus slavery in, 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 in religion of our own making, of trying to accomplish, trying to earn our way, trying to, to build up a, a, a credit of righteousness that will somehow satisfy your holiness, which we can never do. Well, Father, help us to see the distinction. Help us to understand by your Spirit, work in us to see the implications of being adopted by you, Father, because of Jesus. And then give us a heart, Lord, to persevere and never turn back, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.